Hi everyone, I'm Summer. I'm Carrie. And this is Popsia Podcast. I'm nervous. How <laughs> to be nervous be fun. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> oh my god! What the hell just happened? <laughs> what the hell? What is happening? <laughs> um, make sure you come back. We're gonna do this bi-weekly. So make sure you come back to talk to, to us more about you know, sex, drugs, and self-improvement. <laughs> Welcome back, y'all. Uh, today we're joined by Molly Murphy Tyndall, um, who I will forever be indebted to for uh, giving me the terms decentralized cult. <laughs> um, so today we're going to be talking about our experiences growing up in evangelicalism and our deconstruction of our faith and, and all of those fun things. Today we pick up where we left off in the last episode in the middle of our conversation about mental health and what our respective churches taught about that. Um, if you haven't watched the last episode, I do encourage you to go back and, um, listen to that. Um, there's a lot of good conversation there and also it will give a lot of good context for the rest of the conversation. So, yeah, I mean, ours, um, in our church, dad was very much, he's like, yes, you know, anxiety and depression exist probably only because he had experienced them. Very anti-medication. When you go into like my grandmother's and you go, you know, further on that um, Sunday continuum, it was very much mental health is just a, you're not right with God. Um, you're, you know, it's, it's your fault no matter what, right? You gotta pray it away. Um, until you go even further, there were some members of her family who see things like schizophrenia um, as either demonic possession or demonic oppression, which are two different things that they will argue about at length on what constitutes one and what do I constitutes the other and if they're even possible. But yes, that is, um, as a matter of fact, one of her sisters, um, uh, who I love very, who loved very much and I miss every single day, she was one, of, she was actually, Ironically enough, she was a pastor and uh, an evangelist, and she is actually the first person to ever tell me, if this is not what you want, you don't have to do this. It's okay. Um, and so, but I still believe that she, I, I don't want to label her when she's not here to label herself but um she was not straight where she would ever felt open enough to be you know straightforward on where that was you know where where she was on that but um she had a lot of uh you know female roommates um <laughs> but if you asked my grandmother about that you know what she says would say that was a spirit bothering her. She was, she's not really that way. It's a spirit bothering you. So now you know, Carrie, your attraction to women is just a spirit bothering you. I'm not attracted to them. 
<laughs> personally, I th personally I think if there's a demonic oppression, it's being attracted to men. Damn it. <laughs> it's really interesting to hear like the small town experiences which really seem to be rooted in a lot more of like charismatic traditions mm -hmm. which lends themselves to a side of like mysticism and even folklore like really relying on demons as as temptations and as actors versus yes. not that not so that it doesn't exist in urban oklahoma too in those churches it certainly does but it's really interesting too, because a lot of the churches that I grew up around or interacting with would say, yes, Satan exists and demons are in the world. But for the most part, everything came down to human sin. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot less on that trajectory. So it's really interesting to hear like almost like the community driven aspect mm -hmm. versus academic driven aspects and how they relate to the church and how they create a lot of the same results in how we felt, how we interacted with our own brains and our own experiences and our own sexual identities, but they're coming from almost two completely different places. Mm -hmm. There are some churches and, and, you know, that part of being the preacher's kid is, you know, you got to, if, if you would sit quietly in, in the corner and not be noticed, then you got to hear all the different ministers debating things, right? And so I heard a lot of interesting things in my childhood. And there are some who are very much uh, like they actually the Satan is so plays such a big role in their idea, like with the way they talk about him it's like he is also omnipotent right like he's always there and he's always bothering him like how can he be everywhere <laughs> you know so yeah i don't know but it, the, the funny thing to me is like they you it is it's very much more like this mystical magical ide ideas but they're so quick to condemn anything else outside of that as witchcraft mm-hmm Oh, I also wonder what it does to their relationship with their communities, because again, we're talking about like what tends to be very small churches, probably, I guess, under 100 members for these small towns. And it's almost like by blaming a third party for a lot of things, even just a spirit bothering them, your grandma's able to see her sister as someone who struggled with something, but is not defined by that struggle, versus a lot of these churches, like where I come from, the person is defined by that sin. Mm, until that's interesting. So it doesn't allow you to see that person as dealing with a third party, but rather in constant competition with themselves. So maybe that's why they kind of, that kind of becomes the way that they go, because it is with a small town and you do only have so many, you have a limited number of people. Right. And so you can't really just automatically throw everybody away as much as some of these folks would want to away. but you can justify it right yeah hmm. small theory someone should research it that's interesting i mean it's it is interesting i don't know hmm. or did you i'm gonna be thinking about that for a while did you identify <laughs> as leaving the church when you were 14 15 even if you still had to no. Okay. no 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 i um I actually started even, let's see, I got married at 18. I started, I had my first kid at 19. I know I took my oldest three kids to church. Um, 
the youngest two I have not. So somewhere in there, <sighs> sometime between 2007-ish, maybe around there. I, I don't think I left the church entirely until like I wasn't attending at around 2007, like as often or whatever, but I, I still went. No, I still went because I was still living here and I was still working for the outreach. So I was actually working for the, not the church, but the nonprofit run by the church, right? Um, up until 2010. So I guess that's around the time I left when I actually moved and I got divorced, which is something you don't do. And I think that was really like, I had to started it internally for years before that, but, um, once I realized like they can't make that, they can't make that separation and they can't see, I, I was just done. I was done with the patriarchy bullshit and um, the, the shaming that was happening because I was leaving. And I'm like, I am leaving because I have an obligation to protect my children and to provide them a safe place. And if I stay, I'm not doing that. And one by one, most of these people told me, no, your job is to stay there. God never said you would be happy. God never said you had, you would necessarily be safe. Whatever's happened to you is your fault. You know, all of those things in the stupid umbrella, <laughs> family the structure bullshit. Protection, these people really have a problem with people being safe. Yes. I used that language to my dad over the summer when he and my mom and my siblings, because they got their flying monkeys too. Um, oh, yes. They, yeah. When they were going after me for very loosely attending a Disciples of Christ church that's local, which is essentially Unitarian. And I'm attached to them because I love the people there. Really don't go. Um, but I was using that as my cover with my family for a long time that I was still going to church. Because if I wasn't, that was going to be a significant problem. So I used that as my shield so that we didn't have to have the conversation. And then my dad looked up sermons, dissed my friend Kelly very badly um, for her views and her preaching. And then they badgered me for weeks about this. And I finally just said, I can't do this anymore. I'm like, I'm not talking about this. And I said that for weeks. And then I told my dad at some point, like, this is not safe. I am not safe here. And my dad completely mocked the concept of safety. So yeah, all this umbrella of protection that they believe in, but the moment you say, I'm not safe, they're like, no, that's okay. You're not supposed to be safe. I'm going to start calling it the umbrella of control because that's, that's really that's what it's great. about. That's, that's what it's about. It's about controlling and you stay within your roles and you, and you do those things. They, they, Wait, they don't care about your safety. On your podcast, for anybody that doesn't know, a lot of that comes from the Institute for Basic Life Principles um, which their homeschool arm is called Advanced Training Institute, ATI, um, created by Bill Gothard in the 1960s and 70s that really became popular for homeschool families in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Also popularized by the Duggar family, the Bates family, um, and a lot of people that run in those circles. So that really crossed denominations. But that image of the umbrella of protection, whether it's just the umbrella of God and the family underneath, or the umbrella of God and the father and the mother and the children, in layers of umbrellas. Um, I'm surprised at the number of people that got that through just like 
exposure to similar concepts, but weren't directly involved in IBLP or ATI. It surprises me sometimes because like my family wasn't ATI, but my mom used that language ever since I was a small child. So it had made its way through by 1999, 2000 to a lot of like mainstream evangelicalism. Oh yeah. Um, we were, we were buying our literature for like Sunday school literature and stuff from an apostolic, it was apostolic press or something like that. Um, can't remember the name of it, the actual company, something to do with flame, who knows. There's always the biblical imagery and everything. Yeah. Um, it's like when Marvel starts becoming too liberal for you because they carry right. Myers and rosaries, like, you know, you've gone too far. <laughs> right. But even they used, like, they wouldn't, they, they used the, uh, the same diagram. They wouldn't, you know, attribute it to where it came from or anything, but they used the same thing. Um, hell, we got taught this shit at school from our teachers and stuff. They wouldn't tell you that's where it came from, but that's where it came from. And I mean, some of them, they were going to, let's see, the churches in town. There's the Assembly of God Church. There's the Church of Christ. And there's a Baptist church. So they're not like, you know, you know, French fundamentalist groups, but, you know, they're mainstream denominations and they're still getting the same teachings. Um, and then they're teaching them to the children. You made a point earlier that a lot of people are like, where did this come from? Especially as we talk about, you know, the 2016 election. January 6th, like all of these, like what we're dealing with now as far as seeing like white Christian nationalism really take the main stage. And I think people like us that have experienced this pretty much our entire lives, and a lot of people older than us too have been saying this for years, like almost like the Old Testament prophets, like, um, hey, shit's happening. Just because it hasn't happened to you yet, just because it hasn't hit your PCUSA church is it because it hasn't come to First Presbyterian downtown or First Baptist doesn't mean it's not happening. And you just look at like the evolutions within the Southern Baptist Convention, which is like a bellwether for what's like the conversations happening across the nation. Just look at that for the last few years. Look at the evangelical conference structures and the fact that they were all dealing with sexual assault and then how they covered that up. And these conversations have been happening. These these they've been gaining ground quietly since the 1990s uh with god's guns and gays and now it's what was it the, the on the side of the bus for that georgia election jesus guns babies like <laughs> yeah yeah terrible <laughs> um but yeah so for anybody that's surprised i think that's why it's important to have these conversations it's that's like true. you know um i'm 26 and this has been my entire life and it was happening well before then so it's just something that not everybody saw coming not everybody saw the evolution of. Right. I think a lot of like the quote unquote mainstream churches, when I was young, you know, I'm 40, a lot of them were very much, oh, you know, a, they would laugh it off and they're like, oh, that's just, you know, that's them over there, you know, and they would talk about it quietly. And, but they and I don't think they saw it coming that it would infiltrate in to, you know, and then within, by the time I'm in my early 20s, the Baptist church, like, and I mean, you know, <laughs> that is a large denomination and it's, you know, they're having issues with like, they had a youth group, 
can't remember what it was called. I sat here all day trying to think of what it was called and I can't remember now. And which we thought was normal. Church camp, typical, right? Turned out it, he was training these kids like it basically at a paramilitary camp. Well, and because it had slowly happened and the parents were shocked and they had not ever seen it coming. Yeah, that's another interesting um, avenue for like either research or analyzing um, what we've experienced as like a social collective within these decentralized cults. The rise of paramilitary groups in the 1990s as a response to Waco and mm -hmm. the Oklahoma City bombing parallel a lot of the rise in militaristic language and training groups that churches used. IBLP's mm -hmm. alert camp. Uh, and a lot of other, uh, a lot of other organizations um, really start to echo each other. So you have, not only is this extreme right wing thing starting to happen, but you have the evolution of that with religious language at the same time, which I think should indicate how closely connected um, these these groups are already, even in the 1980s and 1990s, more mm -hmm. than the Reagan Republicans and the Reagan Alliance with the Moral Majority. Um, there's there's a lot of grassroots, probably not even astroturfing at the time, but like actual grassroots action happening from that side of things. Absolutely. I know we need more quantitative evidence to actually prove that. Right. I, I know a lot of people don't believe me, <laughs> especially, uh, you know, up there when it, in the metro, you know, we have the conversations, particularly in policy circles, you know, about guns and things. And they're like, you know, and they are and they're very often people who have not spent much time in rural areas like to talk for us and they're like you know well they have all these guns because of hunting and stuff I'm like no 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 <laughs> i remember when that shift happened at with waco on average you most people had two or three guns in their house right because you have different kinds of game you know you need different calibers that was it it really was unusual. There was, all, you know, maybe one or two people that might have more than that. There was a huge shift. I remember sitting in my grandmother's living room watching the compound burn. Like, this was a big deal to um, a lot of religious fundamentalists. This was, like, in, for, for months, every time the churches were open they were talking from the pulpit about persecution and martyrdom and the government this is the, the government is going to come after us that is when militarization you know of all of these folks started i remember like them talking and you know i was still a kid but yeah. i remember them talking about plans on how you know how to get guns where you get them how to stockpile them where to put them reloading shells like the survivalist thing went into high gear then it was it, it's not it's not been about hunting in rural oklahoma it had it started then with the whole idea of the government is about to persecute us and that's when we got all the talk about the martyrs people started buying fox's book of martyrs like <laughs> like crazy and like you literally were taught in some of our sunday schools they were being we were taught you know you were put through drills in some churches about what do you do, you know, if somebody says you have to denounce God or die. And like you literally. The combination of factors here is fascinating because you have Tim LaHaye, who's been on the right wing working with, um, I'm not going to remember names right now, but okay. uh, people like Sarah Posner and um, 
power worshipers, I don't remember her name right now, Radonishi, religion scholars, like they've been documenting these shifts and these movements and their interactions for a really long time. Um, tra tracing him from like the Goldwater era in the 1960s and before that the John Birch Society in the 1940s, 1950s, you know, McCarthyism, anti-red. But so that's where a lot of these roots and, and, and conversations start to happen. But in the 1990s, you have Waco, at Ruby Ridge in Waco, you have the broadcast of uh, the internet is starting to happen and more fears about the mark of the beast and, and revelations and this new focus on, you know, tribulation and times, the rapture, Tim LaHaye's producing books and content surrounding this. Um, and then you have Columbine as well. And so not only is it the fear of it happening to individual people and churches, if you will, if you consider Waco like a church structure, but you have schools. Um, and so, yeah, you get this combination and then that, 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 that myth of, the girl Rachel being asked if he was a Christian and being shot, which is, as people have documented, pretty much a straight up myth. Um, but that gets popularized for any of us who were elementary school children in the 1990s and like the 2000s, especially. I remember my brother reading her, the biography her father wrote about her when he was in sixth grade. And, you know, my mom was very sensitive to guns because of some family issues. And uh, that still came through very quietly. Columbine was still talked about. Um, very quietly. So yeah, you've got this really interesting intersection of things going on that along with the rise of paramilitary groups on the right and the language of God, God's guns and gays, which our illustrious Jim Inhofe um, helped promote, <laughs> that yeah, you've got this increased militarization. And then you get to the Tea Party in 2008. So you go another decade, 15 years later, the reaction to Barack Obama's election, the Tea Party movement kicking off, and it just gets worse. Like that's the era that I really entered politics was the anti-Obama era. And I remember that language, the language of secession, the language of stockpiling, of overthrow. Um, even in this urban area that I grew up in, in Tulsa and Wausau, uh, people, men carried guns to church all the time. They packed, concealed all the time. Um, and my dad would tell me like, oh yeah, this person has talked about their stockpile before. And uh, to the point where I would like have dreams and thoughts about like, like we are going to be persecuted because that's what we were told. Yeah, we were told that a lot. Um, one thing I don't think a lot of people understand outside these circles um, is that, like, part of the political push that we're seeing is because they're trying to bring about the end times as they believe they're going to happen. It's like the end times on their terms. Like, right times in revelation but we need guns to protect us but we also want all these non-christians to die and go to hell but we would rather not die so we're gonna have guns right it's like they won't go carrie the other intersection with that's the anti-vax movement um which people have been freaking out about since covid 19 vaccines but it was like really part of all that process carrie were you, was your family anti-vax surprisingly no okay i think um my let me rephrase that they are anti-vax but because my aunt is not and she has my nephew who is five now she told them that they would not be allowed to see him if they were not vaxxed so they became they got vaxxed for that That's okay. the only but you like you got your vaccines when you were an infant and yep okay yep 
got all of when did the anti-vax movement really become a thing andrew wakefield in the 1990s with his study that the mmr vaccine starts creates autism in children the study of that's right children is bullshit like the whole thing yeah he got paid for the study there were eight children this is not a large-scale study and a lot of them like weren't even like were having other issues unrelated to it and he's recently like in the last two years been touring with anti-vax and right-wing rallies some of them coming through tulsa like the freedom rallies um andrew wakefield has been coming over with all those or dr jim meehan is the local tulsa he's an eye doctor like he doesn't have anything to do with this (laughs) <laughs> and he and Wakefield. I told my mom like five years ago. I was like, you know, this whole thing was a complete myth, right? Like somebody made it up, got paid off. This is, like, this is bogus science. And she didn't listen. My grandparents absolutely believe it, and because I told them, like, I started working with like autistic children when I was like in college and like the tail end of like high school. Um. And they so firmly believe that vaccines cause autism. And when you explain to people that think that, like when you explain to them that autism is genetic as much as like hair color and eye color, they shut down like immediately. Like they just cannot believe it. And like telling them that even there's children that are not vaccinated that are still autistic, they can't wrap their minds around that either. They're like, well, they must have autism because like their mother was vaccinated before she got pregnant with them i'm like i know i know a girl that blames her eye muscle turn on getting vaccinated as a child and i'm like honey i'm not great with eye muscles that's not like i didn't come from a background of pediatric eye care um but eye turns show up at the same time as vaccinations happen so I think we have a correlation causation issue here. And like, <laughs> vaccines don't cause eye turns as a rule. It's just so hard because, like, telling people that as an infant, like, you have so very little control over, like, everything that you do. Like, you're functioning on infant instincts. <laughs> like, you cry when you're hungry. You want to be changed. You roll your head around because it's uncomfortable. Like, you do these things as an infant based on, like, your needs. And telling them that signs of autism don't show up until you get older and you start having, like, motor control problems or you have, you start talking and you start fixating on things. Like, that's about the time you start getting more of your vaccines and it's so hard to explain to them. Like, you're not going to know somebody's autistic when they're born. Like, they just cry and they sleep and they eat and they like that's just what they do it's like it's so but I also think for some folks there's this element in here of there's a big undercurrent in a lot of these churches about having anything quote unquote wrong with you is is caused by sin right so like you did something wrong your parents did something wrong so there's this this compulsive need develops to find something to blame things on. Which really hurts because mm-hmm. like you're telling your child that they are wrong, like mm-hmm. just for being alive. And I remember, I remember what class it was, but I was taking, um, in college I was taking a class and my professor was very Christian 
it was a required class. I had to take it. But she was like, parents, when, um, like, they have a child that has Down syndrome or a child that has, like, cerebral palsy or anything like that, they have to mourn the loss of their perfect child that God gave them or was supposed to give them. But you did something wrong or you were tempted by Satan. And so he transformed your baby into this. That's, That's incredibly damaging. To like, yeah, the anti-science threads here are really interesting because you have the anti-vax, you have the anti-autism, you have the anti-anything wrong. But then you also, I think we could enter that space of talking about this with um, gender non-conforming children, uh, children who want to live as their real identity and sexual orientation. And the way that we all know that that is also something that happens inside a person that often doesn't come out until later. Um, but it's the same kind of language about mourning that perfect child, um, which is also another anti-science aspect or anti-expertise aspect of a lot of these religions. Right. I think it goes even beyond anti-science. They're just downright anti-intellectual yes, entirely. Because, because it, and, and it makes sense because if you... If you have the ability or willingness to critically analyze things, then you're not going to conform and obey. Well, and you're also going to be able to find the circular logic, you know, mm -hmm. presuppositionalism right. as a doctrine, as a theology, which didn't exist until like the 1890s. The idea that if it doesn't come from the Bible, it doesn't exist, and the Bible affirms itself is circular reasoning. Yes. But that's people don't use it. And some of the biggest lines, I mean, even as I was a Christian, like the amount of cognitive dissonance I was experiencing was to this level. I was realizing I was bi, I was scared, I didn't know what to do about it, but I thought for a long time, you know, we can go into a whole conversation about like purity culture and sexual dysfunction too. Oh, but we need the, to do that too. <laughs> the level of cognitive dissonance was, I literally would tell like my husband or like a close friend, like, you know, if the Bible didn't say anything about being gay, I wouldn't be like, I wouldn't feel any way about people doing that like it wouldn't affect me it doesn't matter like people can live how they want but it's only because it's in the bible that like i i feel like that's not right for me but even that cognitive dissonance is stupid because it's like the bible affirming itself and but it basically mm -hmm. saying yeah these people are totally people are totally fine to be people it's just because of this one thing that i can't be myself or that somebody else can't be themselves like and there's uh i don't remember the name of the person that is going to drive me insane, but they were talking about how the Bible was mistranslated, which obviously like a lot of it probably was, most of it, the majority. Um, and they were talking about that section where it says like, man should not lie with man. And it was mistranslated and it was saying like, man should not lay with children. Right. Because, because it's about power and sex yeah. and power. But it right. never about man laying with man like it was right. not about being gay it was never about homosexuality in any form it was about pedophilia like you should not lay with children and so people like to quote that not knowing that it was mistranslated and when you tell them that they just shut down they're like no no the god right if he wanted it to be translated at this exactly. point exactly translations are incredible um 
the RSV, all these translations from the 20th century and the fights over like the NIV. And then obviously, Summer, you brought up the King James conversation. King James. Uh, yes. The 1611 King James version of the Bible, which we know is like full of horrific flaws in its translation process. And so, yeah, and that's part of what helped me deconstruct too, was going, I can't trust that what I'm reading is real. And I'm not good with languages enough to learn another language. But then they say, like, if you are going to believe anything, you have to believe the Bible. God wrote the Bible through his people. Like, no. My dad's solution to that was to get us a, um, a Strong's Concordance. Because you can look up the original Greek and Hebrew. Because his thing was, I've seen so many people, you know, be dogmatic about things and twist scripture. I want you to never just take what somebody's word for it and to look up the original language. He probably wishes he hadn't taught me to do that because he has not been able to win a, a religious debate with me in 30 years. And, <laughs> um, and honestly, it led to a lot of my deconstruction. Because I'm like, yeah, most of what y'all say is bullshit. Right. Like, look at the most of what's being taught around the ESV, the English Standard Version, which came out in like 2010, 2012. Like, when I graduated from high school in 2014, my gift from the church was an ESV. Um, Wayne Grudem, you'll know for him for his uh, systematic theology, a big supporter of Donald Trump, um, came out in another part of my important deconstruction in 2016. Wayne Grudem and James Dobson. Um, What's the word I want? Endorsed Trump. And I was like, uh, bye. <laughs> but anyways, so all these people, they basically turned the ESV into a Bible that affirms what's called complementarianism, or basically that patriarchal family structure of submissive wives and submissive women in society too. Um, and it was very, it's very intentional, very explicit. Mm -hmm. um, somebody else had a video on that one recently. I can't remember who. Anyways, when I got married, my cousin was to officiate the wedding and he almost backed out because I refused to put obey in the vows. He literally had to pray about it for days to make sure God was okay with me not saying I was going to obey this man. I'm pretty sure I said obey because everything was like the way of the traditional church. But James and I did like a like a remarriage, what we called a 2.0 last year. And explicitly <laughs> left obey out. In fact, I explicitly promised to not obey him. Nice. Very <laughs> nice. See, we wouldn't have gotten, see, I think I was already, I think really I was kind of already starting to deconstruct because getting married at that time, because getting married wasn't important to me. We honestly would not have gotten married if it had not been for our family saying you have to be married you can't live in sin and all of that nonsense and so we're like if it'll shut y'all up we'll get married <laughs> um so we did of course i didn't understand the legal ramifications otherwise i never we never would have done it um but yeah i i wasn't gonna obey i still don't obey my family's very upset i have not been married yet let's get married carrie <laughs> summer. <laughs> oh, that's gonna be summer. You know, it's kind of weird how we internalize these things. Like you were talking about, you know, your thoughts about um, sexuality, you know, in scripture. 
and I, in my head, it worked the op kind of the other, a different way. Like I, I don't know how to explain it. Like I knew in my head, like, okay, the attraction I'm having to girls is automatic. Like it's not something I can control but God, you know, and so God doesn't make you, you know, doesn't make mistakes. We always heard that, right? God doesn't make mistakes. Um, but God's, God doesn't make gay people. Mm. So then I must not, it must not really be that. It, it's not the same as the attraction that I feel to men. Mm -hmm. So it was like this weird, very strange yeah. way to internalize it. Um, if you want to jump into the purity culture conversation, I can. Oh yeah. Talk about that yeah. Too. Fuck purity culture. How's that for an intro? That's my segue. I, I have, fucking hate purity culture. <laughs> I read Kiss Dating Goodbye a few times by the time I was like 15, I think. My parents told me since I was a really young child, like, you're not going to be a teenager. You're going to be a young woman because teenagers are terrible and you're going to be good. And also, we're going to do courtship. You're never going to date. And then they never prescribed anything for what courtship would ever look like. And even when I asked them when I was, like, 15, there was, like, no answer. I had oh my ready to take down, like, okay, what are we doing? We're going to have this conversation because, you know, I'm getting older. And, like, what if, you know, somebody comes to dad? And, like, what do I do? And um, how do we do this? And they just had, like, ah, ah. Super helpful. Um, but I had internalized so much of purity culture. Like, I didn't know what sex was until I was 16. Oh, wow. Um, I had internalized so much of purity culture that I did not have attraction to anybody. And if I did, I shut it off and turned mm -hmm. it off and cut it out. Like my friends would talk about boys sometimes or they would confess the guilty sin of liking someone because that was a big deal. You know, if you like someone, it's a sin. And of course, you know, I would listen to them and talk things through and never admitted. And I think a lot of them thought that I just never liked anybody. I never talked about it with my mom. Um, I just like, tried to cut it off so I had no idea that I was actually attracted to women because I didn't have attraction to men I didn't know what sex was I didn't know I know like around 15 I noticed that hands were nice like people's hands could look really nice and that was like the first thing I like I was like oh those hands look nice and strong that's cool like nice hands it's nice to hold hands and like that was the extent like my little innocent head <laughs> So when I got married and, you know, now you're expected to have sex and, and I couldn't have sex without hurting, called vaginismus, um, never went to the gynecologist because I was terrified. Getting on birth control was a fight with my mom. So I never went to the gynecologist because, you know, all the shame about people seeing your body and like, so I didn't go till this year when I went because I was choosing to put my health and the health of my partners, plural, first instead of my fear. But, um... I struggled with that with vaginismus for seven years and mm. couldn't have sex because of that. But at the time, I also started as as I started awakening sexually, because there's still other parts of sex that were really good as, you know, I got married. So it was all within the confines of marriage. Um, I started realizing that I wasn't just attracted to men. And I was like, well, I can't be a lesbian. And I didn't know what bisexuality was. So I thought it was binary. Um, I can't be a lesbian because being a lesbian is wrong. And I can't be wrong because I'm a Christian and I can't do that. Right. And then I just kind of kept lingering and lingering, especially as I was continuing to struggle with sex and felt really guilty for it for years. Cause that's also part of purity culture is 
once you're married, you can't like anybody else ever. You have to shut down everything, including emotional cheating on your husband. And you have, I have to, a whole rant about that. <laughs> and you have to have sex with them whenever they want, which mm -hmm. I couldn't perform. I couldn't do without being in excruciating pain. And it was awful. And everything about sex just bothered me because I was, I internalized it so much. There was no pleasure. And, uh, so I was talking to James on the phone when he was in Georgia. We were, I was driving home from something and I go, James, what if I'm bisexual? Cause I learned that word. Finally, I learned what it meant. And he goes, uh, duh. <laughs> <laughs> and I was still a Christian at the time. So I was like a Christian bisexual who was staying with my spouse, you know, all the nice little things. And so the story ends better, but that's like my experience with like a lot of that internalized, which like, it just, it doesn't end when you get married. It doesn't end when you have the legitimate fulfillment of those illegitimate feelings, as they say, you carry it with you, even when you're no longer under it, because it scars you up horribly. Yeah, it does. And it's, it's hard sometimes because there's so much purity, like, purity culture is so ubiquitous in this country. It's in everything. And um, like I said earlier, purity culture is foundational to rape culture. They cannot be separated. <laughs> I know people want to frame it as, oh, it's about, no, we're trying to respect women and blah, blah, that's bullshit, okay? Because purity culture inherently means there is no consent. No There's no consent. It, marital rape, which people say doesn't exist, uh, is like rewarded within a lot of iterations of purity culture. It's encoded in the law. There is a different definition under the Oklahoma Criminal Code um, for rape if you are married to the perpetrator. You, because you belong, because marriage law is property law, you belong to your spouse. Um, we had true love waits at our school. Oh my gosh, that's awful. Like I had a yeah. that my dad gave me, but like that is ugh, so bad. It was an assembly, you know, we, we had to go to a, an assembly. And so we, we all went and we get in there and it's true love waves. And I'm like, what the, and you know, I didn't know what that was yet. And um, yeah. And then you know, they have to sign the pledge cards and the teachers are standing there watching you making sure you sign it. You can't leave until you sign it. And I'm just like. My friend had oh. to do that through her church. So at least it was through her church, not her school, but they had the whole pledge. Uh, yeah, we, we had to do the pledge and everything, and you you know you had to sit through the whole shamey bullshit uh, about how sex is wrong and all of that, and you have the pledge. And of course, I was already having sex at this point, and this just offended me to my core that they were being so blatantly shaming and coercive about this. That when I left, I'm like, that's it, I'm getting laid this weekend. I don't care, and that's what I did because. I'm like, <laughs> And I wouldn't have if they hadn't done that. But I'm just like, it made me feel so defiant because I'm like, fuck y'all, this is not okay. I even, I think I, I was 14 or 15 at the time, but I understood at 15 because that was when I, yeah, that's when I ended up with that one guy. Um, yeah, because I was even at 15, I recognized that was not okay. It's just so, oh, there's nothing, there is nothing about purity culture that doesn't creep me out. The purity balls, the rings, it's just, I have a visceral reaction to all of it. It makes me laugh that I pledged my purity to my father before I even knew what sex was. And because of that, my mom would make me, she would, when I was disagreeing or not obeying quickly enough or anything like bad attitude, which, you know, I was a very compliant child, so that was pretty limited. 
Um, she'd say, look at your ring. You promised to obey. So really, oh it was an obedience pledge more than anything else. That's the way they interpreted it. And so I think about that a lot. And I haven't decided what to do with my ring yet. It is silver. But um, yeah, it's just, it's awful. You had a ring too, didn't you, Carrie? Yes, I did. And I lost it. I don't know where it went. It obviously meant so much to me. <laughs> yeah, we all lost it at some point, Carrie. <laughs> yeah. I remember doing two lovelies in high school twice. I went through it twice. We had it once at the school, and then we went to a big giant conference that was like thousands. Oh my God. I forgot about the conferences, the giant conferences and the stadium concerts. It was like, who was, it was some big artist now. It was when she was just starting out because I was in. Probably like Carrie Job or no. Britt Nicole. It was Britt Nicole. Oh my God. Because <laughs> I think I bought her with my like allowance. Like, I got oh, wow. So we, I was scared. Oh, go ahead. We went and um, it was really funny because our youth leader and his wife like went, but we also had like two students, like one of, we had a boy and a girl lead student, you know, um, right after the conference, they got caught having sex in the bathroom. Uh, <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I like, it was, was just wild. I was spared a lot of the conferences because even though other kids in the church would go to like the Ignite conference or the church camp or thing or missions trips. Um, my parents had this idea that that wasn't okay to spend that much time with your peers. And so I went to adult Sunday school and wasn't part of the youth group. And by the time my sister entered the youth group age, she was allowed to go because she also had friends and I didn't have friends and she pushed it. And uh, I was too terrified. So I got spared the large conference settings a lot of the time. It was I, very you just triggered a memory. I forgot all about that whole idea of children aren't supposed to be like, because when I was a kid, that was becoming a popular thing. Children's church was bad. You don't separate for Sunday school because kids aren't supposed to be like, they need to be sitting with the adults and learning like the adults because mm -hmm. you're expected to act like a little adult. Oh my God. Yeah, sorry. That just I I had blocked that one out. <laughs> I don't know what the purity culture conversations in the youth group were, because I just got everything either from my parents or from these books, right? And they took them to their logical conclusion, and didn't interact with anybody, and was basically a recluse because I thought that that was best, and because I had social anxiety and didn't know it. So it was bad. Like, um, there were several kids in my youth group who weren't out yet. I wasn't out yet. Um, I didn't even know what it was, honestly. Um, but I remember it was very much like, if you're having sex before you're married, they would use, like, the analogies, like, the Coke bottle analogy or the gum analogy. I've heard um, the gum. What's the Coke bottle analogy? The Coke bottle? Um, oh, so they would make you sit in a circle, and they would have a bottle of Coke that wasn't opened yet, and then somebody would open it, and that was them taking your virginity. Ew! Pass it around the circle, and everybody had to take a sip of it. And at the end, they would say, "And now this Coke bottle is all used up and full of germs, and nobody wants to drink this anymore." And I was like, That's disgusting. That's like the chewing gum analogy. Or the tape yeah. analogy. It oh, was, the tape! I forgot about the tape. It was gross. 
think I can't believe I did that and participated in that. Well, you're supposed to. <laughs> it was oh my god! And like I remember there was one day we were talking about how you're supposed to be obedient to your partner as a woman. You're supposed to be obedient to your husband. And my boyfriend was in the youth group also and he was sitting next to me and I remember him looking over at me and being like, yeah, you're supposed to be obedient to me. And I was like, we're breaking up right now. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> we're not married. That doesn't count. It was rough and uh, I have a lot of like traumatic like flashbacks about it. Lynn telling me like you're going to hell for kissing somebody or you're gonna be whatever nobody wants a used up girl and like you're worthless like that was the exact like wording that we got every Wednesday. and this is why i really hate like the conversation even like the flippant mentions of body count and bullshit like that and i know people get tired of me bitching about it but every time someone around me says something about it i start pushing back because i'm like if that is what it's based on if you have had quote too many partners then you're worthless like that is purity culture plain and simple and it is damaging and it's harmful it is not okay it's called being a low value woman and being a high value man i am a no value woman stay away from me <laughs> Value I have nothing to offer you. <laughs> woman, I am great at a discount, okay? <laughs> don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel. And if you want to make sure you don't miss any of the uploads, be sure to turn on those notifications so you, uh, you will know as soon as those go up. Um, also, like us on social media at Hypoxia Podcast. Or uh, the easiest way is to go to our website, hypoxia.com. That's H-O-P-O-K-S-I-A.com. And the links to all the socials and all the podcast feeds are right there. And we just want to thank you all for sharing your time with us, hanging out with us. And we hope to um, spend more time with you in the future.